experience with Charlton. I was actually at Passport Control uh, a week ago, today, about this time. Um, I was coming through and they gave me all these questions. So we saw all the people going, you know, EU over here, you know, Britain over there, all the Americans were waiting. And the guy said, so what are you going to be doing here? I said, well, I'm visiting some friends, going to a conference. He said, oh, where's the conference? I said, Manchester. And he said, where? I said, I don't know, somewhere in Manchester. Um, and so what the conference about? I said, well, it's about churches and, and planting churches and um, visiting my friends, a pastor who's a, who's a church in Charlton. He's like, ah, oh, Charlton. He's like, all right. He's like, uh, so they need a church in Charlton, right? Um, and so I thought, okay, well, I guess we're going to a place where they really need a church. So um, I'm really glad that you're here in Charlton. Um, for many years, we wanted to send Greg and Christina here. And honestly, we know Greg and Christina. We know their passion to, to come as a family, to be a part of you guys as a family, for the gospel to be in Charlton. But when I'm going to leave this trip, I love Greg and Christina. But I feel like now I don't just know Greg and Christina. I know Redeemer. I know you. I know the people of this church. And I'm greatly encouraged by what God is doing in you. And so I hope what I preach today is a source of encouragement to what you're doing, and I want you to walk away uh, feeling very, very strong that the Lord is with you in what you're doing. So our church is in 1 Samuel, and our, our pastor, our, our lead pastor, James, uh, he loves to put so much text together, so he gave me three chapters, 18, 19, and 20, so we're going to cover a lot today. Um, so we read the first 16 verses of, of Samuel, and these verses are really a launching pad into the rest of the narrative. It's kind of one, one narrative. Um, and what we see in this narrative is the kingdom of Israel is slowly slipping through King Saul's fingers. And as he tries to maintain control of his kingdom, he slips into madness and paranoia, fear and anxiety. Now, I think this should be a familiar theme for us. Many of our great stories and plays have this dominant theme. Shakespeare, I think you, you like Shakespeare in, in, in Britain. <laughs> think about King Lear. If you've read that, it's a king gives over his kingdom and he goes mad. And his madness leads to tragedy for all involved. Or maybe a more modern example for you Marvel fans, uh, Black Panther. Um, it, when uh, I did the sermon a couple weeks ago at Riverside, Laura had never seen Black Panther. I said, you gotta watch Black Panther, so you get my reference. Um, where there's a king who's trying to hold on to his kingdom. And his actions bring another to the throne that incites a civil war that hurts all involved. I think we know it's dominant in the world around us. It doesn't matter your form of government, from a monarchy to a democracy to a communist regime. What do we often see? Fear, paranoia, leaders trying to hold on to their own kingdoms at the cost of any of their own people at times. So it is the same with the nation of Israel in the book of Samuel. It's not going well for Saul. I'll give you a quick recap to get us in. In chapters 13 through 15, the Lord has commanded Saul to do some things, and Saul has completely rejected the word of the Lord. He has disobeyed him. So the Lord rejects Saul. And there's this chilling scene in chapter 15 where Saul has heard this word from the prophet Samuel, and as Samuel walks away, he reaches out to grab his robe. And the robe tears in his hand, and Samuel says to him, So the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. However, the kingdom isn't ripped away in a day like a band-aid. It is slowly unraveled like a thread from a tapestry. So in chapter 16, we meet this neighbor, 
David. He's anointed with oil. He's anointed with the Spirit, who then leaves Saul. And as that happens, Saul starts to brood. He needs music therapy mm-hmm. on the lyre mm-hmm. from David. In chapter 17, we see David isn't a music player. He's a giant slayer, slaying Goliath, honoring the Lord. Perhaps this young lad has got something kingly in him after all. See, I think it's often so clear for us as modern readers of history to understand the story. We have hindsight. We know what's going on. But for the people that were actually living this out in real time, they don't know. This is a theological history interpreted for us. It wasn't clear. How will these people respond to this new anointed? This new one who's anointed by the Lord that most people don't know about yet. See, I think we must learn from this theological history this morning because we find ourselves in a very, very similar place. Just as the kingdoms and the houses were clashing in Israel, so two kingdoms are clashing in our midst. We live in a world ruled by a rejected tyrant who wants nothing more than to take as many people down in flames as he possibly can. Of course, I'm talking about Satan, that ancient enemy of God. He stands behind all the evil kingdoms of this world. He stands behind our own desire to rule our little kingdoms and hold on to them. But there is a true anointed one. There is a true king, a true giant slayer who's already come off the battlefield victorious. And while his kingdom isn't fully realized yet, it is slowly and surely on advance against the kingdom of darkness in this world. So the question this morning is, can you see the kingdoms clashing around you? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're in a great struggle with fear, anxiety, all the things going on in your life. Can you see the, the greater war going on? Or perhaps you're here this morning and you've just been going through the motions. You're like a bag on the conveyor belt and baggage claim just going through life. Maybe you're afraid to open up your heart and see what's really there. Or maybe you're a bit like me. You see the reality and you're impatient. You get overwhelmed and you struggle to hope. Regardless of where we are, the truth is there is a war for our hearts. God wants to use his word this morning and his truth and grace to call us out How are we going to respond? We must respond with self-abandoning faith in Jesus as the Lord's anointed king. For he is our only hope of a secure future in the true kingdom. So we're going to look at three aspects of that today. First, when we're faced with the truth about our own crumbling kingdoms, we must respond with repentance. We must turn. Second, when we do turn to Jesus' kingdom, we must seek friendship with the king and his and his people. Not used to that mic there. <laughs> and thirdly, we must await, as we await this consummation, as we wait for this kingdom to come, we must persevere with loyal allegiance and committed love. Let me, let me, let me pray ask the Spirit to be with us as we dive into the Scripture. Father, as I stand up here, I'm aware of my own weakness, that it is your Word that is powerful, it is your Spirit that speaks to us, not a person, not a man, but it is your Spirit. And so we pray that same spirit that anointed David and that anointed Christ after his baptism, Lord, that you would speak this morning to us. Wherever our hearts are, wherever we need encouragement, wherever we need to turn, we pray that you would charge us clearly from your word this morning, including my own self. Please be with me as I deliver. In Christ's name, amen. amen. And so our passage picks right up off chapter 17. Familiar story, David, Goliath, battlefield. 
Saul's, if you, and by the way, keep your Bibles open. You can just kind of run your eyes over the text. Saul's initial response is certainly is natural. This guy has defeated the great enemy of Israel, and he brings him into a, his household like a son. He sets him over the men of war, and Scripture makes it clear over and over and over again that David continues to have success because the Lord is with him. And as verse 5 says, he was held in the greatest esteem by all. So when David looks good, Saul looks good, right? Except when David looks too good. In verses 6 through 9, you see something begin to change in Saul. As they came home from this battlefield, of course there's obvious joy. Um, for the Riversiders, you, you remember what the people wanted in a king. They wanted a king like the nations who would fight their battles for them. So they're ecstatic. They don't just have a king, they've got two. The women come out. This, this song they're singing is to the equivalent of, we have two heroes that have killed a massive amount of our enemies. The Lord is with us. And it's here we see the descent of Saul into madness. It starts with jealousy. Instead of celebrating and enjoying the praise with David, he can't share it. He becomes fixated on David. He eyed him from that day on. Why was he so jealous? I think he's the first one to get a little clarity on just who David is. He had the prophecy. He knew the kingdom was being ripped from his hands. And his jealousy cries out, right? What more can he have but the kingdom? Perhaps this is the neighbor that is better than him. This is a clear pattern we see in chapter 18. Verses 14 and 15 on the screen. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. And then a little later on, what we didn't read, when Saul saw and knew the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. First he sees, then he knows. Saul's jealousy and fury turn this weird mixture of awe and fear. On one hand, he can see how awesome David is. But here's the problem. His sense of awe of David doesn't lead him to love and admiration. It leads him to fearful paranoia. And the narrator tells, tells us why in verse 12, which I think is the thematic verse of this passage. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. What chilling words. The Spirit of God that had rushed onto Saul in chapter 10, enabling him to prophesy on behalf of the Lord, and, and enable him as the Lord's anointed had left him. And now in the, that place, instead of prophesying, he's raving. That's the same word in the Hebrew. Instead of prophesying on behalf of the Lord, the Spirit leaves, he's raving like a madman. Without the Lord, Saul starts to lose touch with reality. Now, we do have something difficult here in the text on the surface, maybe for modern readers. A harmful spirit enters Saul from God himself. Is this some sort of demonic spirit of evil? I don't know that's necessarily the case. God, I think, could be simply sending a spirit of judgment against Saul, which, which reveals a strange and a severe mercy of God. There's warning here in Saul's affliction. It feels like harm to him and all around him, but did God send this spirit to hurt him for fun? No. I think it is to get him to come to his senses. One commentator notes on this passage, 
the awareness of God's presence with David should have produced repentance, should have called him to turn away from his own, own ways, but instead it only hardened his heart more. Saul's response to David shows a man in advanced state of rebellion against God. On the surface, it seemed like Saul, Saul's enemy was David, but Saul's real enemy was God. He couldn't come to terms with God in his reality. And so, in the rest of chapter 18 and 19, we won't read it all, he goes in a murderous rage pursuing David. First, David's protected by Jonathan, king's own son and next in line to the throne. Then the king's daughter. And then finally, by the Spirit of God himself, by the end of chapter 19, Saul is like a madman lying in his underwear prophesying among the prophets. Seriously, you can go look it up later. The Lord is utterly in control of what's happening to Saul. Utterly in control. And there's nothing that Saul can do about it. Can you just see that jealousy, rage, and fear eat away at Saul? It becomes more and more clear to Saul that the Lord has left him. But instead of turning to the Lord, he moves farther and farther away, desperately trying to hold on to his own kingdom. Now, it, one doesn't get that place in a day. It's not like one, the Spirit left and one day Saul decided, okay, it's months and years of continually rejecting the Lord's reality. Think about this. Saul had a direct prophecy from the Lord, from an Old Testament prophet that told him exactly what would happen. And he still rejected it. How often today do we wish God would tell us what he's doing in his life? And we say, well, if he just spoke to me, or just put it in the sky. But even if you have a direct word from the Lord, from an Old Testament prophet himself, you still reject the Lord without his grace. So what about you? Have you come to terms with the Lord's reality? Think about Saul's jealousy and envy and bitterness for a moment. How have you been like this this week? Perhaps it's that person at work that got the praise over you or the promotion or someone else got that job. Or perhaps it's those shiny, happy people with their wonderful house, their 2.5 children, the dog, and the very full bank account. Jealousy and envy are slow killers. We don't often realize how poisonous they are. Could it be that the turmoil and the bitterness that you feel is actually the Lord trying to get your attention, come to your senses? Or consider fear and anxiety. If there's anything that describes our current cultural moment in the States, I don't know about here, I think probably here as well, we're a people racked with fears and anxieties about everything. We often rush right past what our hearts are telling us. Instead, we try to control our circumstances or we try to hold on to our kingdoms in our own fingers, or we turn to entertainment, food, drink, sex, medication, adventurous experiences, anything and everything to keep us from hearing what's going on in our heart. Because if we listen to them, if we peek into reality too much, we might be too terrified to deal with what's there. Now if that's you, I want you to understand I'm not just some guy up here that's got it all together. I actually really struggle with fear and anxiety, often. When I was even preparing this sermon, uh, for Riverside a few weeks ago, the Lord, He smacked me in the face. I was struggling with fear and anxiety all week long. I would, honestly, I was so afraid I would stand up and fall flat on my face and the Lord wouldn't be with me. I'm afraid for my kids' future. I'm afraid for our church. I'm afraid we're never going to make a dent in the darkness. And I imagine there could be some times here where you feel like, are we ever, is the Lord going to use us? And sometimes when I really think about it, waves of sadness and brooding come over my soul. 
and I can't control it. So this passage knocked me in my face because I recognize myself in Saul. When we recognize this in ourselves, what are we to do? See, we must not respond like Saul, rejecting the Lord. We must listen to the emotions coming out of our heart. We must take every thought and every emotion captive to obey Jesus. My friends, I want to gently and firmly call you this morning to listen to your hearts. Don't, don't avoid your heart. Instead, be honest with God and with others here in this community about the fear, the anxiety, the sadness, the disappointment, the bitterness, everything coming out of it. Talk with someone. You're talking with Ray. Talk with Michael. Talk with someone in your missional community. I'd talk with you after the service. Get some lunch. But I call you to move towards the Lord. And you can do that because the gospel of Jesus Christ frees you and me up to admit the sad and scary places of our heart. You know when Jesus was killed for you in your place, He knew everything that was in your heart. He knew everything that you would ever do that flowed out of that heart. All of the terrible things. And He went to the cross and died for you anyway. Instead of rejecting you, He's graciously calling you to deal with your heart. Perhaps, yes, maybe he sent some sort of circumstances as sort of a judgment to get you to listen to your heart. But that's where you must see reality this morning. The evil ruler of this world wants to twist your heart away from God. He wants to use your fear, your pain, your anxiety to destroy you. And to take you away from the only one who ever could care for you. So I want you to see the reality of the kingdoms at war for your heart. And I beg you, don't hold on to your own kingdom in fear and anxiety. We must respond in repentance. And that's a churchy word. It's a churchy word, repentance. It means just turn away from yourself and turn to the Lord. So in the face of the fears and anxieties of our own crumbling kingdoms, we must turn to the Lord. But the problem is, is we turn to the Lord from ourselves is hard. We can't do it alone. We need some friends. We need a family on the mission. We must respond like Jonathan, seeking friendship with the coming king. Let's look back at the text in chapter 18.1. What a different response from Jonathan to the very same David and the very same circumstances. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. See, as Jonathan sees David deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines, he also sees David's, not as just military bravery, but his zeal for the Lord. The Philistines hadn't just mocked the nation of Israel. They had mocked the armies of the living God, as Goliath says. Something about this stirs Jonathan. This is the same Jonathan that a few chapters before, he had had the courage to, him and his armor bearer, they jumped over a wall, they were outnumbered. They, they had great courage and bravery. But against Goliath, Jonathan didn't do anything. There's something about David's bravery and zeal for the Lord stirs Jonathan. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with this story, but sometimes, for those of us that have grown up familiar with it, we think, oh, D Jonathan and David, they're about the same age, they're war buddies, they're slaying people together, they love each other. That's, of course, it's easy, right? They're in battle together. They're, two, they're on equal footing, right? But actually, I don't think that's the case. Jonathan is probably much older. Than David. Maybe old enough to be his father, and they are not on equal footing. One is the son of a king in line for the throne, the other is a peasant, a sheep, shepherd. We know the rest of the story, don't we? So when we read this, we go, oh, of course we know what David is, but, but they didn't know. They didn't know David was the anointed one coming to take the kingdom. But instead of 
holding on to his own kingdom and fearfully holding on to it, we see Jonathan just give it up. Look at verse 4. What does he do? He takes off his robe. What is, what is that? A, what is, what some of the Americans, sometimes we don't understand the robe, but I imagine you might get a little more. A robe. And his sword. And his armor. And his bow and his belt. He gives it all over symbolically to David. Can you see how incredibly shocking that David's response is here? Instead of fearfully holding on to his future kingdom, he gives up his rights to this kingdom. This this flies in the face of pretty much every norm of every kingdom in the history of kingdoms, right? What usually happens if there's a rival to the throne? We were in a castle in Kama yesterday. What usually happens? <laughs> Cut off his head. Future kings are not in the business of handing their kingdoms over to the rival, to the throne, and even bringing them into the court. But Jonathan's actions lead to David coming into the household. I would dare say they play a huge part in David actually coming to the throne. Up until this point, who have the people loved in war? Jonathan. Who had the heart of the men of the army? Jonathan. So in a way, David's success is tied to Jonathan's affirmation. And throughout the rest of the narrative, Jonathan loyally protects David and displays some love. Now I'm going to put 19, chapter 19, 1-7 on the screen. I'm not going to read through them. Put your eyes on chapter 19, just to kind of get a, a brief snapshot of, of what happens here. Saul moves past passive schemes to kill David, and this time he comes with a mission to Jonathan directly. Kill David. But instead of listening to Saul, Jonathan goes out of his way to warn David and set his protection over him. And then, then he goes back to the king, this mad, paranoid king who throws spears at people and disobeys his orders. <laughs> That's pretty scary. Why? Because Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. See, it's one thing to feel a sense of love and loyalty, and to completely another to risk your own life in the name of that love and friendship. How do you think David felt in that moment? He's running from his life from the most powerful man in the land. Even though he has the promise of God on him as the anointed, and he's got the favor of the people, he's not safe. Imagine the enemy, the son of your enemy saying, You're safe. I'm with you. I'm for you. Think of the peace that brings David. How much more do we need friends like that? When's the last time your soul was knit to another like that in friendship? When's the last time someone had your back like that? Now, I don't want to rush past the emotions in this passage. Men in the room. Are there men in your life that you love and that love you back in this way? You do know it's possible to display deep love and emotion and affection without being a sexual thing, don't you? It, in the States, it's like almost all love has to be overly sexualized, but it doesn't have to be. Some people would try to twist this passage, but no. I think for that reason, because we're afraid of, of those emotions out of our heart, we can, emote, we can mute ourselves in worship. We can mute ourselves in our relationships. Sure, we're gonna. Hu- well, I'll hug my my friend, give him a high five when our favorite team scores the goal. We won't talk about what the favorite team is, but we score a goal. We we hug it, but then when my friend is in need, can I put my arm around him? Can I weep with him? Can I pray for him? Can I tell him that I love him when he needs it? Of course, this goes for the ladies in the room, but I want to highlight our deep need for God-given and God-inspired friendship. If our cultural moment is racked with fear and anxiety, it's also racked with loneliness, deep. Loneliness and isolation. See, I've noticed this as people have come into our church at Riverside for about seven years. I've been there. 
The number one thing people say is, I want community. I want real, authentic community. But I would actually tweak that. I think sometimes that could be like two hours on a Wednesday night or an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. I think what our hearts are longing for is friendship, family. And I fear as our culture becomes more and more digitized and more and more isolated, we're going to lose the capacity to even know what a friendship like this really looks like. Do you have that in your life? Riverside, do you have that in your life here at Redeemer? I think the problem of developing relationships like this is tied to fear and anxiety. What, what if we put ourselves out there emotionally and we hand our sword to somebody else? Couldn't they just reject us and stab us and hurt us? Too often our thoughts about our relationships are self-focused, focused on our own needs and our own kingdoms. What was the common bond that drew David and Jonathan together? What really drew Jonathan to David? He saw David's zeal for the Lord. The Lord was with him. David was living for something greater than his own self and his own kingdom. See, if our friendships are based on our own need to be loved and validated and reciprocated, we will kill any chance at a true and lasting friendship. Instead, it's only those who have given themselves away to something greater than themselves that truly possess the freedom to love. Let me say that again. It's only those that have given themselves away to something greater than themselves, like a gospel-formed family on mission, that truly possess the freedom to love others as we are. Listen, as I've tried to make clear this morning, there are, there are kingdoms clashing around us, but if I'm honest, that is incredibly scary. I'd rather just not think about that. It is scary that God has called us to kick against the darkness of this world together on mission. We desperately need friends. We need family on this mission. We're in it together. But how do we know that we're going to be in it together to the end? How do we know that our friends aren't going to abandon us when it gets hard? We certainly can't rely on feelings alone, right? We need loyal, allegiant love. We need to commit. See, you see, David and Jonathan's relationship is not only based on their feelings for each other. They take a formal step to bind themselves together in the name of the Lord. This is the last, last point. Rather than that fearfully holding on to his own kingdom, Jonathan freely gives it away. In doing so, he gives David what he needs most in that moment, friendship. Before long, the, the shoot will be on the other foot. The coin will be flipped. He will need David's protection and love. That's why he makes this, this word covenant, this formal promise to him. We saw in chapter 18, verse 3, when Greg read it, that Jonathan's love led him to formalize that affection in a binding covenant, which is like a, a promise before the Lord. We see it again in chapter 20. If you turn in your Bibles with me to chapter 20, I'm, I'm going to read a portion later. I just want you to have your eyes on it. I'm going to summarize it. You can look along. So remember where we left Saul in chapter 19? He's uh, prophesying in his underwear with the prophets. Where does, where does David run to after that? He runs to Jonathan. He knows Jonathan has sworn a covenant promise to protect him, even though he's the son of the enemy. But in the beginning of 20, we get confused for a second. Jonathan doesn't seem to know what's going on here, that Saul is continuing to pursue David. He says, no way, my dad... My dad tells me everything, David. He tells me everything. If, if he was still pursuing you, I would know it. And David says, Jonathan, your dad knows about our friendship. He knows about our promise. Do you really think he would tell you his plans, bro? 
Jonathan, I don't understand what's going on. Have I not been completely loyal? I mean, if I haven't been completely loyal, you yourself, according to the promise we made, should, should kill me. And Jonathan sees his point. And I think in that moment, I think David has clarity on what's happening. I think it's not that he needs clarity. He knows Saul's after him and that it's wrong. He wants Jonathan to see this, to be with him. It's a vulnerable position for David to be in, right? Because if David really has been disloyal, according to the covenant, he could strike him down. But Jonathan believes David. So they come up with this plan to figure out the truth for once and all. There's this festival coming. Uh, David's going to skip it. Jonathan's going to make up something about why he skipped it. And if Saul's okay with it, everything's going to be cool. But if Saul's angry, then they will know. And they have this elaborate communication plan. I mean, almost part of all the chapters. They're going to shoot these arrows to let each other know. You know why they did that? Because they didn't have WhatsApp or text messaging. It's kind of hard to know how to talk to each other if you you don't have that. But before he embarks on this plan, he reformulates his promise with David and Verses 12 through 17. So I want to read that together. Read it with me. It should be on the screen. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he's well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But if it should please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I don't disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Can you see the realization dawn on Jonathan here? He knows what Saul's rejection of David's going to be. These two friends are now going to become enemies. Enemies, sorry. The two houses will be directly opposed from then on out. And like we said before, David could, could wipe out Jonathan. Well, Sure enough, David was right. Saul responds in a murderous rage. He goes nuts in some of the filthiest Hebrew language in the Bible. Jonathan, you son of a... I know you've chosen that boy of Jesse's. I know that you have rejected... Jonathan, your kingdom, you fool. And then Saul turns and hurls a spear, not this time at David, but his own son. Jonathan, you are dead to me. And Jonathan is filled with sadness, with anger. He finally comes to realize how far his dad sunk. See, and sometimes in this war between the kingdoms, our own families will become enemies. When that happens, we need others. We need friends on this mission. We need, we need a gospel-formed family on this mission who seek our good and the good of God's kingdom to the very end. So he goes back to David to let him know. They embrace, they weep, and they bind their houses together. Jonathan had no earthly reason to bind himself to David at the start. And David later will have no earthly reason to stay bound to Jonathan. But they love one another and they make this promise. And I think this is foreign to us. Now, I don't know as much about your context, but in the States, we live in a culture where feeling is king when it comes to love. Surely my feelings about my spouse are enough. Surely my feelings about the people in my church are enough. 
do I need a, something formal? Do I need a piece of paper to prove that? It's not going to be enough. When David was fleeing for his life, do you think he wanted to rely on Jonathan's feelings? No. When you're running for your life, do you want to feel, do you want to depend on people's feelings for you? No. And it's the, same, it's the same for us. We need friends on this mission. We need people we feel affection for. But we need every member of God's household of the family with us. Because as the kingdom of God clashes with the kingdom of this world, and the kingdom standing behind our fears and our anxieties, we need something greater than feeling and desire. We need loyal allegiance and committed love. That's why at Riverside, we call everyone that wants Riverside to be their church home to make a formal promise together. I think you do the same thing here at Redeemer as in membership. Because when we don't feel like being present, we don't feel like being vulnerable in community, we don't feel like seeing the needs of other people, sometimes what draws us back is that commitment we made to each other before the Lord. And at least in our culture, we're so averse to letting duty and obligation drive us. It feels like legalism. It feels, we want our hearts to always feel like it's in it. But I'm with you in that, but my heart is not often in it. What I need is I need Andy, and I need Landon, and I need Laura, and I need Chris, and I need Jonathan, and I need Caroline. I need you. You need me. You need to call each other back. And Craig, you need Tim, you need Michael, you need Will, you need Liz. You need each other on this. Because it is hard and it's going to get harder. And at Riverside, I long for the day when every single person is giving over the entire selves, their time, their money, their treasure, everything. First to the Lord and then to each other as we engage the darkness together. We are at war and we need each other. When we turn inward and away from each other, we all suffer. But when we turn outward for each other, we all flourish. And so, I implore you today, at Riverside we have a lot of people that just come and then just leave. And I charge them, please, be a part of this family. So if you are here at Redeemer today and you this is not your family yet, I, I beg you, become part of this family. Or if not this family, another church family that is formed by the gospel and on mission against the darkness together. And keep our covenant and our promises together. Do you know why we should do that? Because that is what our king does for us. How do we know it's going to be worth it? How do we know that, they, that we're not going to be left? How, was it stupid for Jonathan to make this covenant? Certainly not. As the missionary Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's exactly what happens with Jonathan. David keeps his promise to Jonathan even after he dies. This is the last thing we're going to look at as we wrap up. Look at 2 Samuel 9 with me. It's on the screen. Please flip over. 2 Samuel 9. This theme is picked up many chapters later. I have verses 1, 6 on the screen, 7 on the screen. You don't have time to read it all, but I want you to see the gist of what happens. So David does become king. He does come to rule. And when he does, he seeks out a member of Saul's house for Jonathan's sake. He finds Mephibosheth. That's how you say it. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, who is crippled in his feet. He tells him in verse 7, he's going to show him kindness for the sake of Jonathan. You know what he does? He restores him his land, his household, everything to him for the sake of Jonathan. But here's even better in verse 13. He brings him to his own table so he can eat with him always. See, David could have just turned his back on that covenant promise. He could have, he could have just barely fulfilled it, just not killed people in Jonathan's house. 
But instead, he goes out of his way to bring an undeserving, a crippled man to his table, and he feeds him from his own riches for to the end of his days. Now, if that is what the first David does with his covenants, how much more so the second David, the Lord Jesus Christ? The Gospel of John tells us that when Christ appeared, he appeared to destroy the works of the devil. The spirit that is, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And once we all walk, we were those sons and daughters of this rejected king. We should have been wiped out. But hallelujah, King Jesus appeared on the scene preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A new covenant, a new promise. And when he was tempted in the desert to take the kingdom by the way of Satan, the word of God spoke the word of God, silencing his enemy. He didn't consider his status as the king of the universe as something to hold on to. He took off his robe and he gave his sword to the enemy who nailed him to a cross and he did not evade. Where Saul tried to kill the Lord's anointed with a spear to hold on to his own kingdom, the Lord's true anointed was speared to a tree to make his friends his enemies. And on the third day, the ruler of this world was shocked, utterly shocked when the carpenter from Nazareth walked out of the tomb, utterly destroying the kingdom of darkness once and for all. So all the fear, the anxiety, the malice, the pain, everything will be put to death once and for all. There's a greater war going on than between David and Saul. There's a greater war than is going on in the circumstances of your life. The Lord's anointed is destroying this kingdom of darkness day by day. It may seem slow to some, but he is patient. There are more people here in Charlton, in Manchester, in Columbia that need to be awoken from their slumber. They need to see the light and come out of the kingdom of darkness because one day he will return and bring full realization of this kingdom to the earth. And he will dwell among us. He has set a seal on us. See, in the Old Testament, this spirit could come and go. But in the New Testament, in this covenant promise, this spirit will never, ever, ever, ever be taken from those who are in Christ Jesus. For he has made a covenant promise with us forever and ever. And you know what? We're going to eat at his table always. Undeserving people brought in by the grace of God, formed by the gospel as a family on mission. And that's what we're here. And in light of such a great gospel, how then will you respond? See, I don't think there's a better way to respond than by coming to this table because this is the sign of that promise that Christ gave us over and over again. And so if you follow Jesus, we get to express that. This is a family meal for those who follow Jesus. This bread... This is a symbol. Christ's body broken for you. And this wine. This is a symbol of Christ's blood poured out for you. This is the sign of the new covenant, the new promise. And we wonder if our king is going to come to rescue his family. Look to this table. Jesus told us to take this meal to remember him. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Every family member, you can be Riverside Redeemer, not part. If you're a believer in Christ, come to this table. But if you don't follow Jesus yet, we don't want you to make a statement about something you don't believe in. But if you want to come into this family, you can take this step today. Let's pray together.